Hey, what's up, guys? This is John Ryan Kane, too, and this is Leading the Christian Leadership Podcast. What's up, guys? God bless you. Welcome to another episode of Leading the Christian Leadership Podcast. I am your host, John Ryan Cantu. In the home studio today, I'm trying out a new software program that was recommended to me by uh, Joel Cardona, actually, our, the co-host of last week's podcast. If you didn't, if you didn't hear that one, it's the uh, unbiblical things that we say that Christians say. It was fun. It was a cool podcast. I was kind of nervous about it, to be honest. I wasn't sure how the response was going to be, but we got a lot of good feedback um, from it. So you can go and check that out after you listen to this episode, which I'm really excited about with my friend Eric Hernandez. So uh, he lives in Dallas. He's no longer in Houston. He used to live in Houston, um, if that was still the case. And we would have recorded this at my studio um, instead of uh, via phone call. But because he's in Dallas, um, I had to get this this software because I wasn't really convinced with the audio. The last time I recorded a, a video conversation, so I tried this one out, and I, I really love how the audio came out, minus uh, a couple of skips, lags in the audio. I'm gonna have to work on that, and and hopefully it's not too noticeable here. Hopefully I can kind of edit my way through it. But I'm really uh, I'm really excited for this conversation. This is this is a topic that is very near and dear to my heart. Um, it's on apologetics, and Eric is an apologetics extraordinaire. So I'm really excited to be talking uh, to him. We're really going to just scratch the surface. We're not going to go super deep into it um, because we just don't have the time. But um, I, I, my hope is that uh, this conversation really ex- uh, sparks your curiosity and uh, the awareness of how important Christian apologetics is this, uh, this in this time um, in our existence in, in 21st century, uh, America, we are surrounded by all the isms, as I call them, humanism, secularism, scientism, all of these things trying to, to tell us that we don't need a God, that we're fully capable of, uh, of living and existing and evolving on our own. Um, so apologetics is very necessary in here in the studio. Well, kind of virtual studio, Eric is going to be talking about this. So without any further ado, we're going to go ahead and bring him in. All right, guys, help me welcome uh, today's guest, a good friend of mine, an awesome man of God, a really intelligent uh, young man. His name is Eric Hernandez. He's an apologist uh, currently working at Texas Baptist on the Great Commission team as the apologetics lead and millennial specialist. Dude, thanks for being on the show today, bro. Oh, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. Yeah, bro. Um, I, you know, I, I've, you've, Eric, you, you've been a blessing to to my life, to our church. You visited us um, on several occasions. We had some events there at our church. Now that you're living in Dallas, it's a little bit harder for you to, you know, kind of stop by. But we're still following you closely on on social media. Um, your job title says. I wanted to ask you about this. It says apologetics lead and millennial specialist. I'm curious about that latter part. What What do you do as a millennial specialist? Uh, well, well, for me, they honestly go hand in hand, the apologetics and the millennial specialist. Um, uh, in a nutshell, um, you know, there's a, there's a statistically speaking, um, whether it's millennials or even Generation Z, uh, there's a big difference between those generations and the generations that came before them. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what are the most distinct ones, uh, for example, um, you and I growing up, we uh, what I've heard uh, apologist Sean McDowell say we were. 
um, technological immigrants. You know, we, we kind of grew up and then we had to learn how to use email and stuff like that. Well, the generation now, the millennials and Gen Z, they are technological natives. Uh, what, what blows my mind is my son, who's not even two yet, he knows how to use a smartphone. He can swipe. He can change videos. He can, you know, scroll through stuff, but he can't even, you know, say a full sentence yet. <laughs> so we're not even sure uh, what 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 all that is does to the brain yet because the technology is so new. Right. right. Now, that's also created a, um, a need for like immediate satisfaction. Um, statistically speaking, millennials are more likely to listen to like a 15 minute podcast than to read for like 20 minutes. Right. So, or, or read for an hour. So there's definitely a push more uh, uh, in a technological side and in how we reach uh, the generation. The message, is, of course, is still the same, but it's packaged sure. differently. I once heard someone say, we don't want to be a, an eight-track church trying to reach an MP3 generation. Right. That's good. That's good. And that's so true, man. Tell me about it. Um, my, yeah, my daughter, Layla, she's, she's about to be four, and, I mean, she's been using the iPhone for yeah, as long as she can hold it. Um, which, I, like you said, we don't really know what it's going to do to the brain long term, and I'm kind of I'm kind of afraid because I, I just I don't know. But that's kind of the that's that's the new wave, um, and so that's cool. So you're, you're you're reaching out really to your to your own generation, and you, you can speak their language and stuff like that. So I think that's really really helpful. Uh, you know, today's topic it's um, about apologetics. You know what it is, uh, why it's important, perhaps. Uh, we can kind of get into some of the different approaches of doing it. I've been a huge fan of, of apologetics for a long time because it served um, as an effective tool for my own faith when I was dealing with doubt uh, at an early age. And, you know, doubt still continues to kind of creep in every now and then. It's mm -hmm. kind of like a, tempta a temptation that you have to just overcome. Um, and so I, I just believe that uh, apologetics is a ministry tool that every Christian needs to have in their toolbox and uh, you're educating people on how to do that. You've been making waves in the apologetic space for, for a long time, man. And I'm, I'm always curious with, with such a kind of a niche uh, ministry, what, what got you into apologetics? Was there like, a, like some type of a life moment that you said, you know what, I, I need to look more into this? What, what, what got you into it? Uh, yeah, absolutely, actually. Um, I always like to share this story um, to, to make it kind of brief. My freshman year philosophy class, um, I, I, my freshman year of college, I took my first philosophy class. And um, I remember one time my youth pastor said that if anyone ever asked you to prove God exists, you simply had to tell them, prove to me he doesn't. And I thought, well, wow, that's brilliant. I'm going to you know, put that in the back of my pocket, and I'm going to keep that there, and whenever I need it, I'm going to use it. Well, first week of philosophy class, um, the professor, who I later came to find was an atheist, he said, this week we're going to talk about something known as a burden of proof. And what that means is that if you make a claim to truth, if you claim to know or believe that something's true, then you bear the burden to prove the very thing that you claim is true. Mm -hmm. He says, as a random example, and I'm using scare quotes, which I later found was not a random example. He said, if you're a Christian here today and you believe God exists and someone says, prove to me God exists, you cannot say, well, prove to me he doesn't because you would be shifting the burden of proof. So the burden of proof is on you since you made the claim. And then I felt like my house of cards just kind of collapsed there. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So then, so at, at that point, I was kind of hooked. You know, I, I learned a lot. He was very neutral. He wasn't antagonistic in any way, but he did bring up a lot of good points, a lot of good questions. 
And it really got me thinking. Now, I, I've always been one to ask questions. In fact, I got in trouble with my youth pastors, a couple of my youth pastors, for asking questions to the point where they'd say, hey, you know, so, don't ask any more yeah. questions or stuff. Like asking. you're trying to be difficult, right. When yeah. in reality, I was I was genuinely curious. Right. And it, it kind of bothered me and worried me when they did that was because I thought to myself, well, if I can't ask as a Christian here in church, then what about the other people who are having these questions who are not even believers? Yeah. Um, so, <clears throat> excuse me. And then... After this, after the first semester, I, I really wanted to take another class in philosophy. Now, everybody warned me to not take Professor Stephen Pena's class. He said, do not, if whatever you do, don't take his class. If you take his class, he's going to try and make you lose your faith. He's going to um, be very antagonistic. He's going to be belittling, condescending to Christianity and religion. Uh, whatever you do, don't take his class or you're going to lose your faith. And my response was, well, sign me up. And it's not because I wanted to lose my faith, but because in my mind, uh, call me crazy, but I was raised to believe by my parents that all truth comes from God. Everything is grounded in God in one way or another. So why should I be? So at the same time, I had these two thoughts in my head. One was that if Christianity is true, I need to know why. But if Christianity is false, I also need to know why. And apparently this guy, this professor might be the guy for the job. So I learned a lot in that class, but one of the the highlighting turning points for me um, that I always share is he walks in a class one day and he pretends like he's holding up an antidepressant pill. And he says, religion wants us to believe in an immaterial soul. And because of the soul, we can have hope in an afterlife. He said, but if the soul is not physical and allegedly this is where our emotions are in and our emotions are not physical, he said, then how is it that I can take this tiny antidepressant pill, which is physical, hmm. and how can this tiny physical pe- pill affect the immaterial states of my soul, which are non-physical? Because every time we look at the brain, all we see are neurons firing, and every time we look at the body, all we see are, are the base compounds of hydrogen, oxygen, and carbon, but you never find anything like a soul. So how do we explain that? Then he says, well, I'll tell you how you explain it. You explain it by saying that there is no soul, there is no God, there is no heaven, there is no hell, there is no afterlife. And we're just physical machines, physics and chemistry all the way down. And we need to learn to live with that fact and get on with our lives. I'll see you next week. Wow. And, and that was classroom. Now, as a freshman in college, not only had I never heard or met anyone who did not believe in the soul, I had never heard anyone give an objection or an argument against the existence of the soul. So this really troubled me. It really, it really bothered me because Paul said, if there's no resurrection, then Christianity is false. Yeah. But at the same time, if there's no soul, then there's no resurrection. If there's no resurrection, once again, Christianity is false. So as a freshman in college, I mean, I was floored. I, I, I had no idea, you know, what to do with something like this. But rather than, you know, kind of let this just, you know, throw in the towel, it pushed me to really study a lot harder. In fact, the area of the soul is now one of the areas that I, um, for lack of a better word, specialize in or, or areas of focus of mine is the existence of the soul. In fact, the last car I bought is a Kia Soul. And I bought it because <laughs> a, a good punchline every time I teach on the subject, and it's worth every penny. No. But in all reality, I, I remember thinking, and I look back now, the sad thing was, first of all, I, I couldn't get an answer to that kind of objection from anyone that I knew or any Christian. Right. Um, and the, the thing that breaks my heart, the sad thing here is that the first people to give me a platform to do apologetics and to learn apologetics and the first people to push me and, and, and really persuade me and, and encourage me to get into philosophy and apologetics, it wasn't a minister. It wasn't a Christian. It wasn't a pastor. Instead, it was two atheist philosophy mm-hmm. professors. Oh, man. 
sad to me is that even I, I think even if God wanted to use a Christian, he couldn't because there were none around me that did this. Right. So if anything, I'm reminded of the verse that says if if we don't cry out, the rocks will cry out. Well, I consider my professor like, you know, a rock crying out. And I remember telling him, in fact, even after we had debated, um, which spoiler alert, you know, five years later, he's my first public debate that I had one on one on the existence of God. I said, hey, you know, I, I know you don't believe in God, but I just want to say I, I just really want to thank you for allowing God to use you in the way he did in my life. Mm. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Did did you pass his class? <laughs> <laughs> I did. I think I got like eighty seven, okay. uh, short of an A or something like that. And, and which which I kind of disagree with because I think he was kind of being biased. Even though I'd answer the questions, I think he would kind of judge more the kind of question I'd answer as opposed to the uh, the philosophical um, tools that I was using. Sure, sure. Yeah, you said something in there that kind of uh, I guess it it, it kind of troubles me, man. Um, you said that uh, people kind of told you to avoid his class um, because they're, they're gonna, he's just going to make you lose your faith. And I, I assume that those people that told you that were, were Christians, believers. Um, and, and so it's kind of like I, I see that problem a lot where Christians are kind of running away from, from the elephant in the room because um, they think, well, if I just avoid it, maybe it'll go away. It won't bother me. I won't have to confront some of these these issues, I won't have to answer some of these deeper questions because it's just going to be too hard for me to do that. So a lot of people run away from it. And I, I noticed that. I, I really noticed that in, in, um, in today's generation. Um, I find that, that people just, they, they don't take apologetics as something that, that is necessary. Um, and you visit a lot of churches. You visit, uh, I know you visit a lot of college campuses and you, you uh, engage with millennials and, and people of our generation. Do you find that um, the majority of Christians don't really know what apologetics is? Would you say that? Um, yeah, I'd say overall, but I would also say that, that there's definitely a shift happening because what's surprising to me, especially working with Texas Baptists, uh, which is uh, the biggest denomination uh, around, especially in America. And then in Texas, we, we've got uh, over 5,000 churches aligned with Texas Baptist. Um, I get calls from senior pastors now asking, would you come teach in apologetics? Now, this to me is kind of new because I, I know some of the younger people and people in college, you know, would, would maybe be curious or want to hear about apologetics. But to have the senior pastors even now say, yeah, I, I've seen the need and value of it. I've seen how, how necessary it is. It is really saying something because it's showing that – I like what you say. You know, it's true. Sometimes Christians are just kind of you know, running away from these kind of things instead of engaging with them, and, and we've really shot ourselves in the foot because of that. Uh, just a few weeks ago, just some, uh, some atheists put up banners downtown saying, in no God we trust, and a lot of Christians were upset at this. But, but the crazy thing is all they kind of did, at least what the news portrayed, was just complain about it. And even I saw that some people had vandalized the flags. Now, I, I actually did a video on it, which you can look on my YouTube channel, you know, <laughs> Eric Hernandez. Uh, and and the, the, the sad thing is, though, it's like, first of all, if our only reaction is to complain, then obviously we, that, that, that's all we have. We, we don't have anything to respond with. Right. <clears throat> and on top of that, I hope that this was a wake-up call to even the city and the people around here because atheists aren't going to go away just because we pray a lot. And they're not going to keep quiet just because we get offended by something they say, and they shouldn't. This is America. It's a free country. 
But instead, the church needs to rise up and be able to know how to respond and engage with these kind of things. And the more and more the church, especially in the past, has just kind of ran away from these things, the bigger the problem has become. And here we are today. Right. Yeah. Um, it's so it, it's a <clears throat> it's a kind of a calling. It's a wake up call for us to confront these these issues. I did a I did an apologetic series um, just briefly with our with, with our church. It was like it was like a twelve week series, and um, I kind of brought in some 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 clips from different podcasts with atheists where they're kind of just grilling the Christian. And uh, one of them was Dogma Debate, which I know that you you were on that show a couple of times. Um, uh-huh. But but he he kind of he'll he'll bring in a guest every now and then and I feel like he kind of brings kind of unqualified sometimes unqualified group, yeah. yeah right he'll bring them in and he he'll just kind of make them look uh, stupid I guess is the is the word and um, but I I brought in some of those clips and I and I presented presented them to to, to our church and uh, I said well how, how would you respond to this and and everyone is kind of just dumbfounded because they've they've never so many of them have never heard the different sides of, of the arguments that they're kind of ignorant to the kind of neo-atheist uh, movements and so um, I do agree that there is a, a shift and I think that you've really been a a really big part of that Eric I mean if I could just speak to your ministry for a second because um, I, I've, I, I think I saw you once before you had done any debates before Eric Hernandez ministry, you just kind of, uh, spoke once. I think it was at wham, wham church with, uh, pastor Abram. Um, it was like at a men's conference and you just spoke on, on apologetics and, and from there, you know, God has just really opened up some doors, uh, for you. I think that this generation, we're a generation that asks why. And, um, because of that, we have to have the answers, um, to, you know, to answer those questions, to defend our faith. So, I mean, thank you. Yeah, man. Um, so I want to kind of just ask you about maybe some of your approaches to apologetics. I know that there's, uh, I guess maybe three main types of apologetics. Um, and I get this question a lot. Um, you know, some, some Christians take offense when you don't start with the Bible, um, as a means of your apologetical approach. But I guess before we go there, we should define what apologetics is. Uh, so if, if you could do that, and then we'll we'll go into the next part. Well, um, first and foremost, I, I tell people this is a biblical mandate. This is not a biblical suggestion. This is not a, a biblical, um, if you feel like doing it, go for it. Um, the, probably the, the most popular verse for apologetics is 1 Peter 3.15, which says that we need to be ready to give an answer or a defense to those two uh, ask us for the hope that's in us. And that word answer or defense, it comes from the Greek, Greek word apologia, which is the Greek word for defense. So apologetics is giving you defense for what we believe. And my favorite verse for doing apologetics uh, would have to be 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 through 6, which is a context of spiritual warfare. Now, it says here that we are that that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but are mighty before God for the pulling down of strongholds. So spiritually speaking, our job is to pull down strongholds. Now, what's a stronghold? Well, growing up, I was told strongholds are things like demon possession or alcoholism, addiction, which it may encompass, but the next verse actually defines it. And it says, in as much as we and demolish thoughts, arguments, reasonings, ideas, philosophies, and presuppositions that go against the knowledge of God, which means in the context of spiritual warfare, and biblically speaking, strongholds are thoughts and ideas and beliefs that keep people from the knowledge of God 
And within spiritual warfare, our job is to tear these things down. So if spiritual warfare encompasses tearing down strongholds, and if strongholds are things like arguments and reasonings and philosophies, then that literally means that if you want to be effective in evangelism and spiritual warfare, you cannot do it without apologetics. Mm-hmm. And I tell people all the time, I mean, if 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 you don't like that, take it up with the author, not me. You know, because I'm just reading the message and, and and conveying it to you. So this is literally part of the biblical mandate. This is literally part of evangelism and spiritual warfare. It's not something I'm suggesting. And uh, another verse I'd like to go to is when they approached Christ and asked him, what is the greatest commandment? Out of all the commandments in the Old Testament, which one is the greatest? Now, when I teach this, I always like to ask the crowd, how many commandments are in the Old Testament? And I wait, and there's always that one person that says 10. And I say close, but it's actually 613. Um, Well, out of all 613 commandments, he said the greatest is to love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, I think the modern day church does a fair job of loving God with our strength. You know, we volunteer at church, you know, we put up chairs, volunteer the bake sales, and then there's loving God with the heart. And I think we do a pretty good job at that. We, we get emotional at the altar, but then there's loving God with the mind. And that literally means your intellect, your faculty of understanding. And the way I've heard JP Moreland put it is something like, so whether you're lifting up a book or lifting up your hands, they are both signs of adoring and loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you're fulfilling the greatest commandment. So apologetics encompasses much more than something like debating. I, I cringe when a pastor would introduce me by saying, hey, this is Eric Hernandez. He's coming up. He's a guy that debates atheists. That, mm-hmm. That's such a small portion of what I do. Sure, that's part of apologetics. But, I mean, really, my passion is to teach other believers how to engage fruitfully, not, not to debate or quarrel or to get into some uh, you know, just ridiculous argument, but to really be able to engage with people and, and non-believers and really get to the heart of the issue. Yeah. Uh, and I, I remember I, um, the first time that I introduced you, that's kind of how, <laughs> that's how I introduced you. I I've moved away from that. Uh, I know that you're, you're much more than that. Um, so who, who would you say are some, like if someone's trying to get into apologetics or trying to read about a, apologetics, um, what, what are some good resources that they could go to or, or who are some, influences that that you could recommend them to uh, well the first book that i ever read on apologetics which i still recommend to this day is i don't have enough faith to be an atheist by frank turk who's, who's actually become a good friend of mine now um the awesome thing about being with texas baptist i get to meet a lot of these uh, apologists and kind of really spend time with them um but those that's still probably i'd say one of my favorite books it's pretty it it, it covers a wide base and it, it's a lot of great information um but but that's always a great place to start. And then, of course, you, you could never go wrong with uh, the world's renowned philosopher and apologist, William Lane Craig, who's debated some of the world's top atheists. He has a podcast called The Defenders Podcast. He also has another one called Reasonable Faith. But mm-hmm. his Defenders Podcast is actually a full systematic theological study of every major doctrine within Christianity. In fact, it takes him about three years to go through every single doctrine within Christianity and he lays out every position within a certain doctrine. So you're not just going to hear perhaps his personal view, but you're going to hear every view on that topic. And then at the end, he'll share which one he leans more towards. And there's even some that he may be agnostic about, you know, because mm-hmm. there's, there's a lot of doctrines where, like, for example, when we look at eschatology, that's not necessarily something I'm interested in because, you know, I'm like, you know, I'm going to die one day. You know, if, he, if Christ comes before then, cool. If not, whatever, I'm still going. I know where I'm going. Uh, but some people are interested in that. So when people ask me, are you post-trib, pre-trib, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, I'm like, I, I, I don't know, kind of don't care. Yeah. But, you know, it's just not my cup of tea. Nevertheless, you know, the, there are 
so many uh, wide varieties of, of doctrines. And then there's core doctrines of Christianity, like the Trinity, you know, nature of God and stuff like that. And I highly recommend looking into that. One thing I really appreciate about apologetics is that it encompasses philosophy and theology. And when you put those two together, you know, you really get a fuller understanding of God. In fact, uh, I've I had one Christian one time tell me that um, he was saying something about God. I said, well, that 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 can't be right because that's logically and philosophically incoherent. And he says, oh, well, well, when we do when we read the Bible and talk about God, we don't use philosophy. I said, really? He said, yeah. I said, that's a really interesting philosophical position you've got there. You know, that we don't use philosophy when we talk about God. You know, so obviously it's self-defeating. So anytime you talk about God, you're going to be doing philosophy. You're going to be doing theology. Um, and like C.S. Lewis said, good philosophy, you know, add in theology, must exist if for no other reason because bad philosophy and theology exists and that must be answered. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, philosophies, I, I never I never understood the importance of it until I really started getting into apologetics. And I think everyone that you've named, uh, Lane Craig, uh, Turek, uh, C.S. Lewis, they tend to be a little bit more um, of the kind of like the classical uh, apologists. Um, and J.P. Moreland, I, I have to mention, I spend the soul. He's, I love that guy. I, I, I've looked and read almost all the stuff he's written he's actually gonna be at uh, our next conference november 9th i'm really excited about that nice yeah uh yeah november 9th i was gonna ask you about any I, i'll ask you that at the end um but okay cool man so um kind of going back here um because i recently had this conversation with with a, a few christians who um were really adamant about starting with the bible like if you don't start with the bible then you're just kind of uh, you're le- you're weakening the word of God and, and, and the power of the word of God, but uh, a lot of times what we find, especially like in the classical approach to apologetics, is you you can't really start there. You have to start you have to start with philosophy. You have to assume that the unbeliever doesn't believe in God. So that's you're kind of meeting them on you're setting a level um, playing field. How, how do you respond to that? I guess criticism if if you have ever. Yeah. Um, so what you're talking about is is a a view of apologetics called presuppositional apologetics. Right. And 99 percent of presuppositional apologists are going to be Calvinist, uh, but that's another story yeah. <laughs> entirely. Um, note a lot of what you said. So it, without offending my Calvinist brothers, though, I, I never felt to do that when I talk about this stuff. Um, I, I'd first say a lot of that, a lot of their objections are really just, in my opinion, pseudo piety, trying to sound pious and spiritual when really it's it's just rhetoric and and talking points. So, for example, you know, someone might say, "Well, you you have to start with the Bible." Okay, well, what did Job do, which is considered the book of antiquity, which was the first book of the Bible written? What verse did he quote when he went through stuff or troubles? Um, you know, there there at some point there was no Bible. The second thing I'd say is, well. Is something true because the Bible says so, or does the Bible say something because it's true? For example, if I type in a calculator, 2 plus 2 equals 4, the answer is not 4 because the calculator says so, but the calculator will say so because that is actually the answer. Now, that being said, if something is written in God's word, it's true not necessarily because it's written down in a book, but because that is actually what reality corresponds with. Um, Now, they also say, well, you know, you have... Uh, you know, if you don't start with the Bible, then <clears throat> you're gonna have to assume that you know the only believer doesn't believe in God, or you're, you're working in the Word of God. I don't necessarily make any assumptions other than the assumption that the person I'm talking to is made in the image of God, and they have a mind which was made in the image of God, which means they have the tools for rationality. 
And if that's the case, no matter their position, no matter their heart, whatever they really do or don't believe, Scripture tells me I need to be ready to give an answer. So whatever questions they ask, I need to be ready to engage them in and with. And the beautiful thing about truth is that you don't have to quote a, a chapter and verse for something to be true. For example, the Bible says, as a man think in his heart, so he is. Well, that's also a principle in psychology. So whether I quote the scripture or just give the principle, it is nevertheless still true. Um, so I, I don't even, and I don't even know what, what whenever presuppositional say you have to start with the Bible, I'm not even sure what that means because I, I like to say this, what did you start with first, grammar or the Bible? Hmm. And I kid you not, I had someone once say, oh, you start with the Bible. And I think, how can you read the Bible without grammar? How can there be the Bible without language? So there's a lot of things you have to do first prior to even getting scripture in the first place. So that's why I say uh, a lot of times I hear that kind of rhetoric. It's just, in my opinion, pseudo piety, a way to sound spiritual. That's not really spiritual and doesn't even make logical sense in my opinion. Right. Yeah, that's good. That's good. And that's um, my unbiased, humble opinion. Yeah. <laughs> Is there ever a point like maybe you're not, you're not, um, you're not talking to atheists. Maybe you're because a lot of a lot of people have friends that are that are religious. Um, they do believe in in some uh, metaphysical being, um, but maybe they don't they don't share the Christian faith. Is the approach a, a little different there? Would you say? Would you kind of go more to a different um, method, or would you stay like uh, classical apologetics? Uh, yeah, I, I'd say classical apologetics is a one stop shop. I mean. Um so, it, and for those wondering or even want to know more about this, if you go on my channel, I actually did a, a, a discussion slash debate with uh, a, a brother in Christ, and I would even say and consider a friend of mine, a Saiton Bergenkate, on apologetic methodology, where he takes a presuppositional approach, and I take a classical approach to apologetics, and we discuss, you know, which view we feel is biblical and why. Um, but, so... Classical apologetics is simply meeting people where they're at. And, and the beautiful thing about this is that it's not necessarily catered to a specific belief or religion or person. It's simply catered to investigating and learning and wanting to, to grow in our knowledge of God. Uh, when, in, in that discussion I was telling you about, the host said uh, – had a question for both of us, and he said, why do you do apologetics? And when he asked me that, I said, well, honestly, first and foremost, I do apologetics because the Bible commands it. And because I need to know the answers to these questions because I have questions myself. In other words, whether I ever meet an atheist or not, whether I ever engage in a debate or not, whether I ever get invited to speak or not, I still need to know why I believe what I believe. Mm -hmm. So I do apologetics first and foremost for myself because the Bible commands me to do it. Right. When they ask slide 10, why do you do apologetics? He said, I do apologetics for the audience of one, Jesus Christ. And I thought, how does Jesus Christ need apologetics? But Setting that aside, yeah, no matter who I'm talking to, the approach is always the same. What's your concern? And let, let's wrestle through this together. When uh, direction, when Christ appears to the other disciples but not him, he says, I'm not going to believe until I see and touch for myself. What did Christ do? Did he start to belittle him? Did he start to make fun of him? Did he start to curse at him and call him names? No, Christ came to him. And he showed him what he needed to see. He's saying, that, is that what you need? You need the evidence. Is that what you need to see and touch? He lifts his robe and in a vulnerable position allows Thomas to touch his wounds. Right. Yep. If we are to be like Christ in a culture and world full of doubting Thomases, are we willing to, figuratively speaking, metaphorically lift our robes and allow the world to see and touch the things that we have come to and learned ourselves? 
Love it. Love it. Yep. Um, yeah, I, I preached the message on that actually during Easter um, for Easter message. So just you know, basically, God, Jesus meets us where we're at, where we're at, wherever, where we're, wherever we are in our doubt or in our level of faith. He He comes down and He meets us there. Um, that's just that's what it takes sometimes, and I think that's how we need to engage with. Uh, people of differing beliefs or non-belief, I think it's really helpful. Um, I want to ask, I want to ask this question to you because when I, when I ask it to other people, like when I presented it to our our, our church when when we were doing this apologetic series, I'm always surprised. Well, I guess I'm not I'm not too surprised, but um, that people don't really know how to answer this question. And it's it's a very basic question. You you would think that uh, a professing Christian would be able to to answer it. And the question is basically, why do you believe in God? Mm. Um, it, it's it's such a simple question. But then you think about it, and you're like, dang, I don't know because the Bible says because that's kind of how I grew up because mm-hmm. this is kind of the only truth that I know. Um, so if I were to ask you, Eric, and this is kind of we're we're gonna do apologetics here for for a little bit. Um, why do you believe in God? What what would you what would your favorite argument uh, be, or, or or your your main reason? Uh, well, yeah. Before I answer that, you know, it's funny because that's exactly how um, you know being with Texas Baptist. Part of what I do is sometimes there's other events and conferences that uh, my team will go up and set up a booth on, you know, to give people information about what we do. And sometimes people ask, "Well, what is apologetics?" And I say, "Look, the easiest and quickest way to explain this is let's do this. Pretend I'm an agnostic or atheist or skeptic." And okay, now share your faith with me. And I say, why are you a Christian? And what's what always blows my mind is that they always pause and start to think for like 10 seconds and they start to kind of wonder. Now, what, what what's crazy to me is let's let's say you were to ask me, Eric, why do you love your wife? I would say, Oh man, where do I start? You know, and I pull out the list and I just start going and going. But imagine if you said, Eric, why do you love your wife? And I kind of pause and I put my hand on my chin and said, hmm. Let's see. And I start thinking you're going to kind of be like, uh, something's something's off. Yep. If that would if <laughs> if that would be hard for me to not even be able to give you an answer within 10 seconds about why I love my wife, how much more absurd would it be when someone says, why are you a Christian? OK, now, now that being said, now you asked, why do I believe I want to first give a caveat? <clears throat> There's a difference between knowing Christianity is true and showing Christianity to be true. Now, I believed in God, and I knew that God exists prior to learning apologetics, and, and that, that, that gets into a whole subject about what's called Reformed epistemology. I believe there are what's called properly basic beliefs that are – that would be beliefs that are not necessarily based on prior beliefs or evidence. So, for example, the belief that I exist is not based on a prior belief or argument because in order for there to be a prior belief or argument, I would already have to exist. To believe that I exist, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. it's almost the impossibility to the contrary. Now, I would say that God is much the same way. I, I would say that we're, we're born with some type of, uh, um, Planicus uh, calls it, or even Calvin called it, a sensus divinitatis. Wilman Craig calls it a witness of the Holy Spirit. I would definitely say that people know God exists even without having any arguments for it. So how do I know God exists? I would definitely say the witness of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I, I, when I, when I look out, when, when, I'm created in such a way that my experiences lead me to believe and know that there is a creator, as Romans 1.20 says. It, the Bible says that creation of the Lord declares his glory, and it's because of that, the creation, that, that they are without excuse. Now, to answer your other question, what are, what are my favorite arguments? 
Um, well, personally, I really like the ontological argument, but it's okay. it's a really complicated argument that you know we, we don't necessarily have to get into. <laughs> but for for practical purposes, other arguments like say uh, the Kalam cosmological argument, which which is which is always a great fun argument you can share in like thirty sure. seconds. Yeah, and it's simply uh, it's three sentences, which in philosophy we call them premises. Premise one: everything that begins to exist has a cause. Premise two: the universe began to exist. Conclusion: Therefore, the universe has a cause. Now, to put it to, to unpack this, let's unpack this cause. When the universe began to exist, three things came into existence that had not existed prior to the universe, namely time, space, and matter. Yep. In other words, if there were no universe, there would be no time, no space, and no matter. Now, whatever caused time, space, and matter must have been outside of time, space, and matter because every cause precedes its effect. The person who made this computer, who caused this computer to come into existence, is not running around inside the computer because you are outside of what you cause, which means that if time, space, and matter had a beginning, and if everything that begins has a cause, then the cause of time, space, and matter literally must be timeless, spaceless, and immaterial. I know a guy like that. <laughs> uh, Eric, I often hear the objection from atheists. Um they say, well, why can't nature do that? Why can't nature cause itself? Why does there have to be an immaterial personal God? What would you well, say? Well, because in order what, – what they're trying to say is, well, in order for nature to cause itself, it would have to exist prior to its existence in order to cause itself to come into existence, which is a logical contradiction, which would mean in order for nature to exist, if it had a beginning, it would need some type of cause that, that is transcendent, that, that goes beyond the natural, that transcends all of nature. And guess what? There's a word for that supernatural mm -hmm. which means if universe began to exist you have a timeless spaceless immaterial supernatural and then concerning the fact that the universe came from nothing then you have an unimaginably powerful being i heard a joke once the scientist said hey god we don't need you we can create life without you and he says really i'd love to see that he says sure the scientist says yeah come to my lab they walk to the lab and then the scientist reaches out the window and starts to scoop up some dirt and god says whoa 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 Get your own dirt. So, obviously, uh, right, yeah. So, you have a timeless, spaceless, immaterial, unimaginably powerful, creating something from nothing, supernatural being. And then one last thing we can say is that given that the universe is contingent, it's not necessary, it didn't have to exist, you have this being making a decision to create the universe. Well, decisions come from minds, uh, which have wills. Wills are granted in minds. We know that minds come from persons. So, you have a timeless, spaceless, immaterial, unimaginably powerful supernatural personal being i call him god and i have the privilege of calling him heavenly father yes that's good i love and i love that argument i'm a big fan of that one that's usually the one that i i kind of start with too because there's really no there's no wiggling out of that i mean and and people try to and they say well what about the multiverse theory and uh th things like that and things like they make claims that might as well be faith claims you know um they're just kind of dressed up in scientific language um yeah, and what's crazy about the multiverse, if someone wants to posit a multiverse, the funny thing is, so for those who don't know, the multiverse would be that there's there's multiple, possibly infinite number of universes out there. What's funny is, okay, so in order to try and do away and explain one God, you posit an infinite number of universes, and you say that I'm the irrational one. Mm -hmm. yeah. Exactly, exactly. Um, and another really good one that I that I like to kind of go through uh, from from there. And you mentioned this, you know, he's a personal being. It's not just, um, it's not just by accident that, that there was, there was intention there to create. Mm -hmm. um, and so we can kind of 
we can kind of see that when we look our at our morality, right? So there's also that moral argument there. Can you talk a little bit about that one? Yeah. Um, also, and I don't mean to keep plugging the channel, but no, go why, ahead, man. why not? I'm trying to get those views. In fact, I think we need like 25 more people to get a thousand. I'm I'm trying to hit that at least. Um, uh, but on the channel, I have a I have a whole discussion I did on on morality, God, and the existence of evil. So. Whenever I talk about morality, I, I use two sets of arguments. The first one is the traditional moral argument, which Willem and Craig uses, which in a nutshell goes like this. If there is no God, then objective moral values and duties do not exist. Well, objective moral values and duties do exist, therefore God exists. To briefly unpack this, so when we talk about objective morality, we, we talk about something that is binding and and true independent of human thought or opinion so two plus two equals four and that is objectively true now contrast that with something that's subjective like my favorite ice cream is vanilla something that is objectively true is necessarily true and it's not as if like for example two plus two equals four it, that didn't have a beginning it's always been true right me loving ice cream well that had a beginning with me now as a thought experiment, suppose that we, uh, the Nazis won World War II and they brainwashed everybody in the world to believe that killing Jewish people uh, was a good thing. Would it then become a good thing if everybody believed it? No. Why? Because objective morality is not based on the human person. So if something like torturing babies for fun is wrong and is objectively wrong and has always been wrong, then that truth could not have been based or dependent on human beings since we have not always existed, which means in order for that truth to be objectively true and have always been true and binding, it must have a grounding in something beyond human beings, which are finite. And, and just to jump to the conclusion, namely God. Now, some atheists might say, well, wait a minute, I don't need to believe in God to be a good person. Well, that, that's not the argument. There's a difference between existence and knowledge. <clears throat> in philosophy, we call it ontology and epistemology. Moral ontology, ontology being existence, is, is about why morality exists if it does. Moral epistemology is how we come to know morality. To give an illustration, I can give somebody a book and rip off the cover, and they can know everything about the book without knowing who the author is, which means it's possible to be able to read and know about the book without knowing the author. That's because reading and knowing the contents of the book is not dependent on knowing the author. However, if there and that's epistemology. However, if there were no author, there would be no book or nothing to read. That's existence ontology. So, if there is no God, there can be no more. There can be no objective morality, and all morality would be just uh, dependent on our preferences. Some people like Taco Bell. Some people like Burger King. Some people like to rape. Some people don't. Tomato, tomato. Do what you want. Mm -hmm. But if there is a God, yeah, then we have a we have a, a grounds for objective human morality. Yeah, that would be in a nutshell the the moral argument. Uh, right. Stop if you need to. If not, I'll go on to the next one. Yeah, keep going, man. Keep going. <laughs> well, the other argument I use is the argument from evil. Uh, typically, the existence of evil is seen as one of the biggest. Uh, uh, objections towards Christianity and allegedly biggest problems for Christianity or God when in reality I think the problem of evil is, is definitely a problem but I would say it's a problem for atheism not Christianity and here's why if evil exists it presupposes two things 
One, it, it presupposes an objective standard of good. And two, it presupposes a teleology to life in the natural world. Let's do one at a time. First, evil presupposes a standard of good. If I accuse you of lying, then I am implying that you are deviating from truth, which means the only way a lie can exist is if first there's a truth from which it can deviate. By the same token, if I say something is evil, I am insinuating it is a deviation of something that is good. Right. So if lies exist, truth exists. Because see, truth can exist without any lies, but a lie cannot exist without truth, which means if lies exist, then necessarily there must be a truth. Mm-hmm. By the same token, if evil exists, necessarily there must be a standard of good from which it deviates. So the argument would be, if God does not exist, objective moral values and duties do not exist. Premise two, a new premise would be, well, evil exists. Okay, well, if evil exists, that would mean premise three, then objective moral values and duties do exist, and therefore conclusion, therefore God exists. Mm-hmm. The second thing, if evil exists, would have to assume teleology to life in the natural world. Teleology is the $5 word, which simply means that there is a, a purpose and an end goal. So, for example, if I said that I had a bad phone, or I could even say I have an evil phone, I am implying that my phone is not operating and functioning the way it ought to function. Now, the thing about teleology is that it presupposes a proper function to things, a goal, a design plan. So my phone had a specific design and goal when it was created. It has a purpose to it. Now, if I say my phone is bad, I am insinuating it is deviating from its design plan. Now, let's take a child who's born colorblind. Someone might say that's evil. Well, what they really mean is that the child was born in a way that it was not meant to be born, which means the child ought to have good eyesight instead of colorblind or bad eyesight. But here's a problem with that. Ought implies teleology. Let me explain what I mean by that. I believe what David Hume said, you cannot get an ought from an is. If my heart stopped beating, someone could say, call the ambulance, Eric, heart stopped beating. But somebody else, like a philosopher, could say, well, why should, what, why are you assuming that Eric's heart ought to be? Yes, it is true that Eric, it is true Eric's heart stopped beating, but why assume it ought to be? Why is there an ought? I don't pick up a rock with three points and say this rock ought to have five. Why? Mm-hmm. Because there is no teleology to the points on rocks. Well, if there's no God, everything in the world and the universe is just a pointy rock. There is no ought to it. There is no it should have this or should have that. Everything just is. However, if a child born colorblind is a disease, and a disease by definition means a dysfunction. Well, a dysfunction by implication implies a proper function, and a proper function by implication implies a certain design plan, and a design plan by implication implies a designer, which means if evil exists, there's teleology. And if there's teleology, there's proper, there's there can be dysfunction. If there's dysfunction, there's proper function. If there's proper function, there's design plan. If there's a design plan, there's a designer. So if evil exists, necessarily there must be a designer, and that would have to be God. Yeah. And I think we live in a, in a world right now where we're, we kind of think um, everything ought to be a certain way. And so what happens is, and I know a lot of, a lot of Christians who have kind of had their faith shaken and a lot of atheists who accuse God of this in the scriptures, when you, you read something kind of, kind of troubling, right? Um, People accuse God of doing evil or allowing evil. 
um, and they think, well, this this ought not to be this way. Uh, God shouldn't have done that. God shouldn't have um, ordered, you know, the the uh, the uh, obliteration of 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 the, of the Canaanites and the Amalekites and all the, all of this. Um, and so that's that's kind of where we start taking on kind of kind of the hat, you know, that that God is wearing because we're saying, well, this ought to be that way. How do you respond to those kind of criticisms? And I know there's a great book that you recommended by Paul Copan, uh, Is God a Moral Monster? I'm a big fan of it. I, I use it as a great reference. But just kind of in a nutshell, what would you say to that, uh, of those accusing God of doing evil in, in the Bible? Uh, so so why God would allow evil or, or specifically God allegedly doing evil? Allegedly doing evil. Yeah, it would depend on a case by case what exactly they're referring to. Like, you know, usually the popular thing is slavery and stuff like that, which mm-hmm. is, a, is a really big misconception. Um, most of the time when the Bible is talking about uh, what we what what the word would be used, quote, slavery is really what's called indentured servitude. Then you have other instances where you have prisoners of war where one was is granted life instead of being executed of war. Then they would become a prisoner of war, which means they would now have to be a servant if they wanted to live. And the obvious reason would be, well, if you let them go, then they can rebel and fight back against you. But if you kill them, they can't live. So you you find a, a median ground and say, okay, if you live, I'll let you live, but you have to work for me. Now, this doesn't mean you get to just treat them however you want. The Bible actually gave rules on how to treat the people that served you, and they were very strict rules. In fact, if you fought with them and you you hurt them, you were then obligated to pay for their medical expenses. Now, here's where a lot of uh, – what I like to call internet atheists don't understand. They think, oh, look, the Bible says that these people are your property. Well, no, because you don't, when you break your property, you don't have to pay somebody for it. If you were to, if, if let's say you started fighting with your servant and you broke his tooth, you had to pay his medical expenses and pay him extra on top of that, which means, no, they're not your property that you can do whatever you want with. They were to be treated like other people. Um, there, there's a lot of other different instances, but like you know, you had mentioned the, the Paul Copen book. He goes through a lot of stuff like that, and, and a lot of the language that's being used. Uh, when I was at the church, we even talked about like if if someone said J.J. Watt just got traded to another football team, and now you know, let's say the Cowboys own him, which would be a tragedy. Um, no one says, "Oh my gosh, J.J. Watt's a slave. He's being owned. He's being traded." Look, they're talking about him like property. Well, that that's just the way. They talk. That's just the rhetoric they use because, let's be honest, he's being paid hundreds of millions of dollars. I'm sure he's like, hey, call me what you want. Call me. Say that you own me. Say that you can trade me. I don't care as long as I get that paycheck. Well, people back then, there was no welfare system. So in order for them to make a living, if they could not work or had no job or they weren't uh, – they were foreigners because it's not like you can just go down the street and buy a house. These were lands that were inherited, so it's not like you know you can just find free land wherever you want. They would – you would work for somebody, and that person had to take care of you. They had to clothe you. They had to feed you. They had to give you a house. So it was really like a – it was their welfare system. You know, I, I'm not going to give you any a free handout, but if you'll work for me, I'll take care of you, and I'll pay all your expenses, mm-hmm. and et cetera, et cetera. So there, there, was, there was a two-way relationship going on there, and for somebody 2,000 years later to open up Google or look up YouTube and look at someone like Arn Ross say something completely ridiculous out of context and say, look, the Bible promotes slavery. Don't, don't put, don't, don't, don't hold your breath on, on their uh, biblical yeah. scholarship. Right. Um, man, Eric, I mean, we can, we can dive in so deep um, in, in, into, into this, this, uh, 
you know, apologetics. Um, and and I know that you, on your website and uh, kind of your YouTube ta- channel, you do a lot of this and you kind of dive in deeper. And, um, you know, before we before we go, because like I said, we can kind of keep on going here. I, I, my, my, the purpose here for this conversation was really just to scratch the surface and um, kind of call attention to the importance of apologetics for, for believers, especially leaders. This this whole podcast is uh, it's called the leading podcast. So we're we're targeting, you know, Christians who are trying to make an impact in their space. And in order to make an impact, I believe you have to know what you believe. And um, so that's that's kind of what we're, we're doing today. But where would you once again just um, uh, draw people to send them uh, for more information on on you and on what you're doing and uh, just any other resources if, if you want to provide them? Uh, yeah, um, you can go to Um I keep most active on Facebook and YouTube. Uh, you can go youtube.com slash C slash Eric Hernandez. Uh, we're starting to put out new videos there. Um, you can hit me up on Facebook and just put my name in or put in Eric Hernandez Ministries. Also, with Texas Baptist, we do uh, – I'm in charge of the apologetics department, and I we put together three – apologetic conferences every year all around the state of texas and we bring in big names like frank turk sean mcdowell lee strobel we've had willem and craig um uh, all kinds of people will have um so our next conference is august 24th which will be in jacksonville texas and we're going to have the, the two big names would be uh jay warner wallace who is a former atheist and he still is currently a hum- cold case homicide detective mm. and he used his detective skills kind of like lee strobel as a homicide detective to investigate Christianity and ended yeah. up becoming a Christian. We'll also have Nancy Piercy, who wrote a book called Love Thy Body, who wrote uh, an excellent book and has great insight into some of the modern issues like uh, homosexuality, transgenderism, abortion, things like that. <clears throat> and then November 9th in Port Natchez, which is by Beaumont, we're going to have J.P. Moreland, who's my favorite. Mm. Uh, he's going to be talking about how to build a case for Christianity and his latest book, uh, overcoming anxiety, which he talks about his personal struggles with anxiety and how he overcame that and the biblical basis for it. Then we're going to have Clay Jones. Speaking of evil, he he wrote it. He's most known for his book, um, Why God Allows Evil or If God, Why Evil, something to that extent. He's going to be talking about the problem of evil. So that, that's going to be November 9th. Um, y'all, y'all are welcome to come for that. In fact, I think right now our August 24th still has the early bird special going on. We haven't put out the November 9th yet. Uh, but yeah, go to my website or go to hit me up on Facebook, check out the YouTube. As far as other resources, cross-examine, so that's Frank Turk's ministry. Uh, highly recommend that. Uh, Greg Coco and Stand to Reason. Uh, Coco, he's become a friend of mine. Uh, Tim Barnett, who's also really become a good friend of mine. He works for Stand to Reason. They have great resources. They do great student conferences on this year. Uh, they had over 2,000 students, even some from England who came in. They, these guys do top-notch wow. stuff. Sean McDowell has excellent resources. Uh, of course, Will and Lane Craig, his podcasts, his books. I mean, whatever you can get your hands on. J.P. Moreland is one of my favorite. If you really want to get into it, um, the book by Moreland and Craig is Philosophical Foundations for a Christian Worldview, one of my favorite books of all time. And and guys like Alvin Planiga, I mean, you know, he's mm-hmm. – it's like the advanced there because when he writes a book for quote lay people or the average person it's not the average person because he's so smart like the average lay person for him is like you know still someone with yeah. you know a degree <laughs> or something but i mean he's done awesome awesome work 
Um, I mean, I, I can keep going. Uh, Richard yeah. Spoonburn. There's so many. I mean, there's so many great resources out there that there's really no excuse why we can't fulfill the greatest commandment. commandment. The greatest commandment is what you said, I think. Kind of cut yeah. off there. <laughs> but yeah, man, I, I, Eric, I, I thank you so much, bro. And like I said, I love talking about this stuff and I love I love watching your videos and, and, and hearing your debates and and uh, you, just your conversations because uh, it, it really does draw attention to such an important topic and and I mean, how to handle it. And uh, so I would I would recommend everyone go out and check check out Eric Hernandez uh, Ministries and, you know, connect with them on, on Facebook, invite them to your church, you know, do all the works. He's a he's an awesome guy to, to know. And he's he's doing some great things uh, for the kingdom of God and the ministry. Eric, man, thanks again, bro, for for coming on. I know we just kind of scratched the surface. Uh, like I said, yeah, we can kind of keep on going. Um, but, you know, the whole point is really just to kind of get people um, in the conversation and interested in it because it's such an important topic, especially today in the 21st century uh, America. So <laughs> thanks again, bro. Yeah, no, thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, even to the listeners, I just encourage you guys, you know, uh, uh, get hungry, you know, go go after God. And no matter what that looks like, don't ever be scared to learn. Don't ever be scared to grow. I had a Christian once say, I, I don't want to learn, you know, philosophy, theology, or apologetics because the Bible says that knowledge puffs up. And, I, and, and you know, they said, well, you know, knowledge can make you prideful. And I said, yeah, but I also not, know a lot of dumb people that are prideful. So, you know, <laughs> if you're going to roll the dice, I'd say roll it on the on the side where the Bible says to actually learn and, and grow in your knowledge of God. So, yeah, definitely seek God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength, and I guarantee you will not be disappointed. Amen. That's awesome, man. All right, Eric. Thank you, bro. Um, we'll, we'll do this again next time, and we'll go a little bit deeper, hopefully. Absolutely. All right, bro. God bless you. I'm blessed. All right, guys, that was my interview with Eric Hernandez, Christian apologist and awesome man of God. Go connect with him. Visit his website, erichernandezministries.com. He's on Facebook. He's on uh, social media, and he's uh, he's making waves in apologetics, man. So uh, connect with him, and uh, really just I encourage you to dive deeper in this, uh, this study of apologetics. Learn how to do it. Learn how to defend your own faith and use apologetics as an evangelistic tool. Guys, once again, I want to encourage you to leave a rating or a review if you are enjoying the content weekly. I'm trying my best to bring the best guests and give you just awesome content. So if you're enjoying it, please uh, share this uh, episode on Facebook, share it with a friend, and leave a rating or a review in your iTunes app. God bless you guys. Have a great week.